this Lord's Day afternoon. Having already come together in this way, what a great blessing we've already been able to enjoy in terms of our prayer, our songs, our edification of one another in fellowship. In fact, it was a week ago on this occasion that we had had an afternoon singing, and thus this will be our first lesson on the Revelation in some two weeks. And as we begin that study again tonight, we would do well to recall somewhat briefly the last part of our study on that occasion, for there is no real division, a strong one at least, as we come to our study tonight. It's so very good to see the visitors with us and our regular membership alike. I'd invite you over the next few moments to enter into a consideration of the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. And as we do that tonight, we will in fact be approaching what many consider to be the single most difficult chapter in the entirety of the book of Revelation. We have, over the last few weeks, looked at chapter 8, and we found that a bit challenging indeed. But in fact, according to most of those commentators whom I consulted, they ranked this chapter, interestingly enough, as the single most difficult. It would seem to me that some of the more challenging ones we have already considered in consideration of that, I would ask you to look with me tonight then at Revelation chapter 11. The exactness and the power of this chapter in many ways takes us all the way back to chapter 6. When that seven-sealed book was taken out of the right hand of the God on high and the various seals were unloosed one at a time, we rather quickly noted that six of those seals were loosed and as the seventh one was opened, we immediately were taken into the consideration of seven angels who each blew a respective trumpet. At this point, we have already listened and noted the events that transpired when a number of those angelic trumpets were in fact blown. In fact, to be rather specific, six of them have already taken place. But doesn't that indicate, as we come to the lesson tonight, the grandeur and majesty that chapter 11 sets before us. For after all, we began to note even back in chapter 9 the fullness of the woes, the three great ones pronounced as chapter 8 verse 13 indicated. All that does is hasten our anxiety to wonder what the next event will be. One of the comments that I think is fair to make about this book is it does keep one on the edge of one's seat, anxiously awaiting what next will transpire what will be the next series of perhaps historic events to cross our path. I've listed very briefly the note that we have moved through history in the time since we opened the first of the seven seals. In fact, we've now transgressed over 1,200 years. In fact, on the last occasion, we noted the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire then as it related to that trumpet that the angel had blown. And then right after that, the beauty and majesty of the Reformation movement. Again, that occurred in the 15th century. We have transpired a great distance from the time when, in fact, the first century church began its movement. I would ask you to notice in that very regard tonight, most recently, in chapter number 10, there was a mighty angel, in fact, that had one foot upon the earth, one foot on the water, and there was a little book in the hand of that angel. John was told to take the book and eat it up, and John did that. That closed chapter 10, and it did so rather abruptly. But might we remember that the division of the Word of God into chapters did not take place with the Holy Spirit. That took place with man. Chapter 11 is not a broken segment from chapter 10. 
with that thought in mind, that powerful angel and the little book being taken out of his hand leads us directly into chapter number 11. If you would, you might notice yet again as we move in that direction. That's the image that we brought to bear as we looked at that powerful angel. One foot on the water, one foot on the land. Notice the rainbow over the angel's head. And again, a little book in the angel's hand. It was that little book that John took. And upon taking it, he ate it up. Might we remember that there was some significance to the effects thereafter when in fact it was sweet to his taste but bitter to his belly? We will need to revisit that somewhat shortly this evening. But for now, would you look with me at another fact we should consider first? In chapter number 11, as we build our consideration preparing for it, those two features about that little book need to be remembered, for that's important as we open the 11th chapter. What was that little book? We learned that it represented the Bible. It was God's inspired holy will. And the fact that John took that little book and ate it up was suggestive of the fact that, again, he would be able to affect a tremendous deal of good work by virtue of his prophecy through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. After all, John penned five of the New Testament books, the Gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Revelation as well. As that angel thus told him upon eating it, he would prophesy to kings and nations and tongues and kindreds. John has, of course, done that many times through the centuries. That little book is representative of the Bible. does remind us, though, historically, about the sweetness that that Reformation movement brought when the Scriptures were unshackled and yet one more time man had access freely and openly to the wonderful Word of God. One nation after another was affected and influenced positively thereby. But might we quickly note that in addition to being sweet to the taste, it was bitter to the belly. Oh, the persecution that would come by virtue of the very character of an open Bible one more time. If you're somewhat interested in further details about that, beginning on Wednesday night, we will consider a series of lessons looking at the Reformation and Restoration movements. The historical background of that bitter belly issue will be one we will have to address time and again. Individuals who had no greater desire than to share the open nature of God's Word, turning it loose for men and women to read and apply to their life, and yet often they were put to death because of it. More than one was burned at the stake simply because he or she desired to let others have an open Bible that they could read for themselves. Oh, the bitterness that was brought in persecution upon those saints of God in the middle part of the era of this latter millennium. To say all that is to say that that does set the stage, though, for what will come in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. So if we might summarize what we've learned, there was a period of time when there was great error associated with those supposedly who were following God. The church had become corrupt. It had even begun to practice and do things that were not approved in the sight of God. With that said, let us read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God." and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, 
For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. To note then the narrative form of what we've just seen, that mighty, powerful angel that had one foot on the water and one on the earth, at this time again makes a statement to John. Previously we note that angel had said, take this little book and eat it up. But now the angel gives John another command. This time in verse 1, we notice that the angel gave to John a reed like unto a rod. In essence, yet again, John takes a picture and a form of enactment in regard to the events taking place. He not only had been one in the audience witnessing and observing these things, he takes part in it again. As this reed is given unto him, he is expressly told in verse 1, Rise, John, measure the temple of God using this reed, and in addition to that, the altar as well as the worshipers that worship therein. All the while upon envisioning or at least imagining that scene of events, we quickly notice that the instructions continue in verse 2. John, you do not measure the court of the Gentiles that surrounds the temple. You expressly leave that out. Why? Verse number 2. It is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city. They shall tread or trample underfoot some forty-two months. At that point, that is a very nice dividing point in chapter number 11. For verse 3, as we'll consider in a moment, undertakes a discussion of two dramatic witnesses. First, we need to visit more carefully these opening two verses. We have read the scene of the events. The question is, what does that mean? The book of Revelation, again, is apocalyptic language and literature. It is, in fact, symbolic and figurative in its presentation. What does this scene of events mean? May I suggest to you that it's very significant to note the following. As often as we have found the Old Testament to be helpful, we shall do so again. There was a time in the Old Testament when an individual was given a reed, and with that he was told to measure something. Might we revisit the book of Ezekiel? In the Old Testament, Ezekiel was given instructions very similar to these, and perhaps in pattern that could be very helpful for us to learn carefully the scene of events in Revelation 11. In fact, it was in chapter 40 of the book of Ezekiel. Beginning in chapter, in chapter 40, verse 1, we might remember that the closing nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, have to do with a dramatic vision that Ezekiel had been given. We're told, in fact, in the opening two verses of that chapter, chapter 40, that in a trance-like vision, Ezekiel was taken from Babylon to Jerusalem, and he was given a dramatic vision of a temple. It wasn't the Solomonic temple, the one that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed and burned. This was a different temple. It would appear in the dimensions prescribed that it was closely related to it, but there were some interesting differences. But notice along that line, Ezekiel was given a reed and told to measure the various dimensions related to this temple that he saw. And what was the point that God wished to share with Ezekiel? What was the dramatic lesson to be learned from the discussion of that temple? I've tried to summarize it in one little phrase. The idea was, this was the means by which in a symbolic way the people of God would be identified. 
That temple, in fact, as we learn in chapter 45 of Ezekiel, would be the very temple in which God's very presence and His blessing would be again shared by those that were of Israel. This was the way to identify God's people. They would worship correctly. They would be present in God's temple. They would, in fact, do those things that God had commanded and ordered. Now, to carry that forward to Revelation 11, what had happened? Here, throughout the centuries from the time the church had been established, it had drifted from its purity. It had drifted from the pureness and soundness with which it was created and with which it was established. And there was a dramatic and dire need for again the purity to be reinstated. For men and women to come back to the unadulterated truth revealed by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Thus in that way, verse number 1 again, John was given a read by the angel and he was told to measure. But consider this with me. As we ask about the fuller significance and meaning, there are three points to be noted. May we do this somewhat quickly and briefly, but I've summarized them in that opening sentence. The measuring device was given by an angel to John. Now, what do measuring devices do? When you and I use a yardstick or some other particular device to measure something, it is a standard. The measuring device is in accordance to a recognized standard, and other things are measured with respect to it. When our children measure a line a couple of centimeters long in school, the teacher expects them to properly use the standard to draw a line the correct length. So, too, there is a standard in spiritual matters. What is that standard? Notice the angel gave the standard. John didn't make it up. John did not devise it himself, and no man has. This was a divine measuring standard made available to John. Lastly, notice it was given to John for a specific purpose. Measure the altar, the temple, and those that worship therein. As we ask thus more clearly about the meaning, in the era of John, this New Testament era, what is the standard, the heavenly standard that identifies that which is pleasing before God? Is it not the Holy Scriptures? There is no other standard than this one. In fact, men will search in vain to ever find another in all matters religious. It is the one and only heaven-given, divinely sanctioned standard of that which is right and wrong, that which is involved worship, and that which is involved all matters related to the church. Thus, we might notice that historically at the time that this vision leads us to understand, the church had drifted from its purity. It no longer was adorned with the graceful nature of the purity with which it was established. God says thus expressly to John, it's time to measure it. Find out who is right and who is wrong and let's place the stamp of approval on that which is right. Notice he says, do not measure the Gentiles. Do not measure those that are outside the temple. My people first need to get their act together and their lives in order and the church pure before we can ever hope to reach those that are lost, those that are outside the church. Isn't that still a fair consideration of wisdom even until this day? And hence he says, them that worship therein. 
that divine standard. Consider some texts that help us make sure we understand the fullness of that. As it makes reference to the temple of God. Think about the ways in the New Testament how the temple is referenced. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, you and I as Christians are said to be the temple of God. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, yet one more time we're told to have no fellowship with Belial, with agreement, if you will, with Satan. Because why? For you are the temple of the living God. And hence, as this statement is made to measure the temple, we understand he means to measure the purity and nobility of the church and make certain that she is patterned only after the divine standard. Human standards will not make a church pleasing unto God. Only divine standards can do that. Isn't it amazing then that as John undergoes or makes these measurements, we quickly notice that there's something else to be seen. Again, it's heaven given. The standard does not come from a conference of men. It does not come from a diocese or a synod or a convention. No men have come together and provided the reed to John. The angel by heavenly authority did it. There's a rather dramatic lesson there concerning, again, that standard. Didn't Paul state it so eloquently when he said, But though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Galatians 1 verse 8. You see, even Paul so powerfully observed that there is but one standard. There is never a possibility of the nature of another. To note that simply leads us to a host of other passages. What did Paul say to the Romans in Romans 4 verse 3? As they were desirous of arranging their lives appropriately, he said, What saith the Scriptures? There was no interest or need to turn to any other document, any other creed, for there is no other. What saith the Scriptures? Isn't it still a fascinating refrain when Paul closed the third chapter of 2 Timothy in saying, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why, Paul? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. It is a dramatic episode to revisit that scene in Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. The divine standard has been given. There will never be another. Though men may think they can devise their own way, as we learn from these two interesting symbolic texts, they simply will find themselves in the outer court, never meeting God's standard, never rising to the occasion of living acceptably and holily in His sight. To see perhaps these reminds us of the greatness of the error that had crept into reality. Again, we have passed well over 1,200 years since the time when the church was established. When, in 1453, Constantinople fell as the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Reformation movement rather quickly succeeded that fact. Consider then the thoroughness of what we see. A church that had gone astray. Roman Catholicism was the ruling Christian religion of the time. They had their sway. The Pope, if you will, in fact, was more powerful than kings of nations. When he commanded, it was done. But doesn't that indicate for us the fact that it was time to get things in order? Measure my people, my altar, and the temple. 
let's make certain that it is correct in its structure and in its worship and in its order. As you and I ask about the thoroughness of that, that pinpoints again what we began to see last time with a little book in the hand of the angel, the Reformation movement. Men such as Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and others, as they turned attention to the Word of God one more time, and the yoke of Roman Catholicism began to crumble. It began to be cast aside. A dramatic image indeed, isn't it? One of the final comments to be noted has to do with the very way that verse 2 closes. How long had this shackling taken place? Forty-two months. An interesting, significant thing, isn't it? What's the meaning of that symbolic character? Again, knowing that the book is symbolic, we do not anticipate a literal period of 42 months. With there being some 12 months in a year, 42 months would be precisely three and a half years. But now let us remember that in Ezekiel, one day was representative of a year. If we take that approach here, 42 months would correspond to 1,260 days, and with a day representative of a year, that would bring us to 1,260 years. If we begin counting from the time that Roman Catholicism took the lead and the first pope was presented, and count 1,260 years, we will come almost precisely to the beginning of the Reformation movement. A beautiful chronological consideration, isn't it? Isn't that amazing when we then ask what happened next? We have seen the measuring of God's people, the beginning of the Reformation movement, but what came next? We need to read verses 3 through 14. Would you read these next verses in chapter 11 of Revelation with me? And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed." These have power to shut heaven, and it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified." And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put into graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them." And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly." The details, then, that we have noted in the reading of verses 3 through 14 
might well be summarized and considered in some of the following ways. I've highlighted some of the major ideas to be at least briefly considered. Would you notice the following things with me? In verse 4, verses 3 and 4, we immediately encounter two witnesses. And what's more, they are likened to both olive trees and to candlesticks. But certainly that isn't all. For these two witnesses were clothed in sackcloth, and that is rather significant. And what's more, they were such that they prophesied for 1,260 days. Now, in light of what we just saw earlier, would we also note there is exactly 1,260 days in 42 months, with each month having 30 days. These are discussing the same time period. It's not a new time period. It's the same one that we have just seen in verses 1 and 2. That'll be a vital point for us to appreciate. Let us look more intently and also further. These witnesses were protected by the power of God. Anyone desirous of hurting them was slain. Anyone with a desire to hurt or to, in fact, damage them, we're told in verse 5, the life would be taken. But even that isn't all. We also notice that these witnesses had tremendous authority. Verse number 6, they have power to shut heaven. They have power from that same verse to, in fact, hold the rain back. We clearly are seeing that God was on the side of these witnesses. He was providing them with power and strength and might. And it was by God that they were able to accomplish that which they accomplished. But notice also verse number 7, when the time of their prophecy was finished, we learn in that verse that the beast arose out of the bottomless pit and slaughtered or slew those two witnesses. In the aftermath of that, their dead bodies is such that folks celebrated the, the death of these witnesses. And what's more, they were not even buried. Their corpses were left open to the air for deterioration and for the un, uninteresting sight of those about what great disrespect that was thus shown to these witnesses that had been slain and slaughtered. As we notice in verses 9 and 10, they that dwell on the earth celebrated when the witnesses died. They rejoiced and made merry. All this already makes us wonder who were these witnesses. What set of events would have characterized the fulfillment of this kind of prophecy? Before we answer that, let's quickly notice how it finishes. In verse 11, the witnesses are resurrected. Three and a half days later, they come back to life. Not to die again, but they come back to life. And in that resurrection, verses 11 and 12, not only is it a mere resurrection, they ascend to heaven, and we have a tremendous statement of the glorification of them. Finally, in verse 13, we notice that great horrors take place in the aftermath of their resurrection. 7,000 are slain. There's a great earthquake. A tenth of the city is slain. And with that, it dramatically concludes in verse 14. The second woe is past. The third one's yet to come. We again can't help but ask and also to wonder about the thoroughness of that which we have just read. May I ask you to consider an interesting set of observations. Who are these witnesses? What set of events would fulfill the nature of them? And what does all of this mean? 
let me submit to you for your consideration that we may again find some help in the Old Testament. On two different occasions, scenes reminiscent of these take place. The first, again, if we take in our attention, the scene to the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we encounter exactly a scene where there are two olive trees, and these olive trees are very reminiscent of the scene of the ones we read of here in verses 3 and 4. What did the olive trees represent in Zechariah's book? They may be greatly helpful to us to understand their meaning here. In Zechariah chapter 4, we arrive in that book at the scene when God expressly gave dramatic information on that occasion to Zechariah concerning the work of rebuilding the nature of Jerusalem. The captivity, if you will, was over. The children of Israel had been released by the decree of Cyrus, and as they had returned to Jerusalem, Haggai and Zechariah were called by God to stir them to movement because the temple needed to be rebuilt. It was in that very scene we arrive at Zechariah 4. The gentleman who led that movement back was named Zerubbabel. His name is in the midst of Zechariah 4. God said there are two candlesticks that are standing beside Zerubbabel, and those candlesticks will provide him with the necessary strength and sustenance and encouragement to complete the work of God successfully. Remember, as we might do so, that in the days of the Old Testament, long before electricity was invented, the only light was available inside from lamps. And the olive oil was provided in those lamps often by character of siphonage or siphons. It's, if you will, that Zerubbabel was the lamp through whom the oil of strength was provided by the God of heaven. As we turn back to Revelation 11, two witnesses are standing by. We read in the course of that which we've seen, they are providing the necessary strength and sustenance and encouragement for God's work to be completed. Though the opposition will be great, though the resistance will be mighty, John is here told the necessary strength will allow it to be successfully finished. What a great joyful note, don't you think? To see that God's Word will again triumph in its power and might. In a moment, we shall see the need for the consideration of another Old Testament text. Might we go ahead and mention it even at this point? Those witnesses were slaughtered, we remember, following their prophecy, but they were resurrected. That takes us almost identically to Ezekiel 37. In the opening saga of that chapter, we read about a valley filled with dry bones. These bones were scattered about, oh, utterly lifeless. What happened? God told Ezekiel by the character of that which took place. He said, Ezekiel, what dost thou see, or what seest thou? And Ezekiel said, I see a valley full of dry bones. Our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. But then God said, Ezekiel, look again. Now what do you see? Ezekiel said, I see these bones coming together, and they're attached with muscle and sinew, and they've come back to life. Ezekiel, what did it mean? God's people at that time were in Babylonian captivity. If you will, their cause was hopeless. They were, as it were, dead spiritually. But yet the time was coming they'd be released from captivity. Back to the nature of Jerusalem they would go, reestablishing the proper Old Testament order of worship. There was a resurrection of the cause of Israel. 
And through that people, the Messiah would one day be born. We read then about the resurrection of a cause. Keep that in mind as we arrive at just a moment about the resurrection of these witnesses. Let us lead our way to that, though, rather interestingly. To do that, might we consider this image again that an artist has drawn about the nature of these two witnesses. You'll notice two olive trees. You'll notice, furthermore, the sustenance that they're able to provide. And though you might not be able to clearly see it due to the lighting, might I point out that it's holding something. Let us ask in a moment what that something might be. For indeed, let us consider, again, beginning in verse 3, how to understand the fullness of these two witnesses. For 1,260 years, the church had drifted into the character of complete abandonment of the truth that God had revealed from heaven. The Roman Catholic Church had had its way, and it had drifted exceedingly far from the truth. So many of the ideas that they practiced in regard to worship and the teachings are utterly absent in the pages of God's New Testament. To say that is to notice that there is sackcloth in which these witnesses labored. Sackcloth indicates difficulty. It indicates extreme opposition and hardness. As again we're going to see shortly in our Wednesday evening study, Gentlemen such as John Wycliffe and others were literally put to death, burned alive because they wanted to open this book and let people read it. The Roman Catholic Church not only didn't want that, they were willing to kill those who did. Oh, what sackcloth was representative of the nature of those that were the Roman Catholic heritage. But that's only beginning. What are these witnesses? Putting all of this together, it isn't that difficult, it seems, to identify them. One was God's Word, and that's what that, that picture was illustrating in the hand of that witness. God's Word continued faithful. It continued to share forth the beauty and power of God's revelation. Though the Roman Catholic Church ignored it, though they had little to do with it, and though they tried to squelch it, ultimately they would be unsuccessful. For the olive trees represented God's divine appointment that that which was intended would successfully come to be. That all began, of course, in the Reformation movement. The other witness, the church. Both had continued faithfully throughout the period, though they labored in obscurity. In fact, we have almost no active record of the purity of the church in the Middle Ages. You see, the Roman Catholic Church dominated and they would have nothing to do with what you and I would recognize as purity. They were the ones who desired themselves by the decree of the Pope to decree everything. They weren't interested in men and women opening a Bible and reading it. They purposefully withheld it from them. To say all of that, though, is to say that these two witnesses, it would seem in many ways the Bible describes these two as witnesses. We've already looked tonight at texts such as Galatians 1.8, God's Word is a witness of His appointed will. What about some in which the church is described that way? In Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 2, The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and all nations shall flow to it. Talk about a visible witness. There's the church under description. It's the mountain of God's house. Later, Timothy would in fact be told that expressly. But if I tarry long... 
that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 The church thus maintained God's witness. Though so often men refused to heed it and turn to it, it was still his true, his faithful, his heavenly appointed witness. That's a rather interesting thought when we notice <clears throat> that in addition, God preserved his witnesses in verse 5. Any force that opposed it would ultimately be killed. Today, you and I are still blessed with these two things. They didn't go into oblivion. The church is still in existence, and so too is God's word. We need not worry that God will ever allow either to be completely eliminated, to be completely destroyed. For remember, Daniel had expressly been told by God that once established, the kingdom shall stand forever. Never shall it be ended until the time when the Son shall hand it to the Father in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. The amazing fact then is that on several occasions the Scriptures state these things. What did our Savior state in Matthew 16, 18? Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even Hades itself would not be able to defeat the church. Our Savior was killed, certainly, at the, on the case at the cross at Calvary. However, that church was established not many days thereafter and continues until this day with the blessing and power of Almighty God at its back. Notice also God's Word in 1 Peter 1.25. The Word of God shall stand forever. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 40 verse 8. God's Word can't be cast aside. It is not something that can be destroyed and done away with. These two witnesses, these two witnesses are such that they're so powerfully identified in these texts before us. In verse number 6, oh, what great things have been wrought by these witnesses. Elijah prayed, and for three and a half years it didn't rain, James 5, verses 17 and following. In the Old Testament, how often did things transpire with godly people, with God and His testimony at their hand? Isn't it easy to see that as these witnesses had the necessary strength, they were able to cause these things to take place? As we hastily reach near the end of our lesson for this Sunday evening, might we notice that there's perhaps two more brief comments. What happened to these witnesses? We notice that they were killed. In the text before us, verse 7, once they'd completed their testimony, they were slaughtered. When we reach the period of the French Revolution, the age of reason, if you will, that movement that had begun, it would seem, was on the verge of collapse. One nation after another around the world had chosen to not only ignore God, but purposefully withhold the nature again of His Word. Again, seeming to withhold the witnesses. We notice, though, that the witnesses did not remain dead. Three and a half days in John's writing, and yet they were resurrected. What happened historically? Once the nation of France, for instance, accepted the age of reason and began to oppose so openly the Bible by such notable men as Voltaire and others, it is to be noted that not many years thereafter, in fact, historically it was less than four years, almost exactly three and a half, that the scene was that those came to their right mind in France. They ousted politically those who had tried to withhold the Bible. They again put in place those who upheld God, those who upheld the Bible. 
there was the resurrection of a cause. Just as Ezekiel had seen back in Ezekiel chapter 37 with regard to the valley of dry bones, the cause of God, if you will, came back to life. That, of course, will lead us to the restoration movement, and we shall consider that shortly in one of our other lessons, perhaps in this very same series. To look at the things that we might summarize with tonight, could we, in fact, make some final comments? We've seen that as scholars and others have rebuked the nature of God's Word, often recognizing that they think they have their own superior way each and every time they have failed. There is no other witness than the church and the Word of God. Those are the only ones that shall remain until the end of time. Human reason and speculative character fall by the wayside one by one. And only the great anvil of God's Word and the power of the blessed body of Christ is that which remains. Oh, we should be eternally thankful for both of them. For these allow us to stand right and justified using His heavenly given witnesses in the sight of God. That perhaps begs us to ask then the following. Are you a faithful member of that body with a life built upon this great witness of God's Word? We've learned tonight about these matters. Measure the temple of God? Absolutely. We need to use God's Word as the measuring reed to ensure we are right in His sight. And in terms of the second part, the two witnesses, God's Word and the faithful church. May we be so thankful to not only have each, but to be a blessed part of the latter. Are you a faithful member of the church? In Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14, we have learned tonight about how blessed we truly are. To live in an age and in a time when at our consideration we have these. If you're not a member of that body, will you not make that happen tonight by the power of the Christ? Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His great name as the only begotten Son of God and the one in whom you believe is Messiah. Be baptized, allowing His blood to wash you from sin. Upon so doing, then live faithfully until death. We could assist you tonight in becoming a member of that body or to rededicate your life if that's the need thereof. But if you need a public response and we can be of assistance, don't delay. Hesitate no longer, but let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing.